Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Dito, along with my co-host, Adrian Guest. And we're back again today with another fantastic interview. And this time you get a double dose of the greatness. That's because we have not one, but two guests who are going to join us on the show today. We haven't done this one, I don't think. This might be a Black Agenda first. And so we're excited to welcome two fantastic guests today to talk to us about the Supreme Court of the United States. And the reason why... We want to talk about this. You probably know because you've heard about it in the news, which is that the hearings just wrapped up for uh, nominee Katanji Brown Jackson. And so everybody is focused on the Supreme Court and what's going to happen with her nomination and whether or not she's going to be confirmed. So we here at the Black Agenda decided what better time to talk about the nation's highest court than right now and what's happening. So our guest today, first up, is going to be Sarah E. Turberville. She is the director of the Constitution Project at Project on Government Oversight. And in her position, Sarah coordinates TCP's public education and advocacy efforts on democratic institutions, the separation of powers, and protection of constitutional rights, including on matters related to habeas corpus, immigration, and surveillance. Sarah, thank you for joining us. My pleasure to be with you. And our next guest is Zanel October. She joined the American Constitution Society in November of 2010 and is the executive vice president of the organization. She serves as a thought partner to the president and focuses on programmatic network and external aspects of the organization. So, Zanel, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. We're excited, too. We get two guests today. So this is going to be great listeners. So make sure you buckle in and get ready. So we want to start like we kind of always do is we want to start from the beginning, basically, of just kind of framing our conversation and really putting context around our discussion. So the Supreme Court, as we all know, is the highest court in the land. It's the one that decides what's constitutional and what's not. It has ultimate jurisdiction over all laws in the United States, but it's not a policymaking body, but it does decide which policy is constitutional. So our first question, I guess, is just from your scholarly perspectives, expert, you know, you being you two being the experts on the show, uh, what was the original purpose for creating the Supreme Court? And, you know, is this something that is unique to the United States? And I guess, Sarah, you can start us off. Well, this is an interesting question, because I think if we had the chance to do it all over again, we wouldn't design the system that we have now. Um, You know, what we have now is a system of nine people who have their jobs for life, right? I mean, they're the only people in our democracy who actually have their jobs for life, um, who have an enormous amount of power to decide what the law is, essentially. Um, And, you know, the reason I said we wouldn't design a system like this if, if we were given the chance is that if you look at a lot of other of like our peer democracies in other countries, um, you know, in South Africa, in, you know, the United Kingdom, um, in Canada, you know, they they have devised a much uh, more different system than the one that we have, where um, major constitutional questions are the ones that are put before those bodies that's similar to our to our Supreme Court. Um, but the way those courts are comprised, um, how many people sit on them, 
um, how they sit, right? Whether they all sit together as a group or they decide or they make decisions in panels, um, how long their terms are, right? Or, or if they've got a, you know, a mandatory re- retirement age, all that's very different. Um, and the other thing I think that is sort of very unique about our system is that we've got a very powerful court that has the ability to do something like overturn an act of Congress. That's like an enormous amount of power, right? Um, But the ability of the people to amend the constitution, to correct for decisions that the court has made that the public maybe disagrees with is um, a very, very difficult one to, um, to muster. So, you know, to, to amend the constitution, right? It requires not only like passage of an amendment through through Congress, but it requires three quarters of state legislatures to approve it too. Um, and that's a that's a really high bar. Um, so we end up with the, so we sort of end up in a place with what the Supreme Court says often is what stands. Um, and that sort of turns our system on its head, right? Where we think that Congress is the body that actually makes the law. Um, so I just, I'll pass it over though to Zanelle and see maybe what she has to say about that. Yeah, I'm happy to pick it up there, um, Sarah. And I, I, I agree that the Supreme Court has a lot of power. Um, and I guess I'll just step back for the listeners to give a, a little bit of history of how the court gained its authority and power, where it comes from. I'm sure you all have your pocket constitutions at home. Uh, <laughs> where you take a look at what our U.S. Constitution is and does. Um, Article three of the United States Constitution is where um, judicial power is vested in one Supreme Court. So that's this court body that Sarah's talking about with all of this uh, power. And it authorized Congress to establish lower courts, what we know today as circuit and federal district courts. Um, The Federal Judiciary Act of 1789 established the structure and jurisdiction of the federal court system, including the number of justices on the Supreme Court, which was originally six, by the way. That number changed at least six times from as few as five justices to as many as 10 before the current nine justice composition was adopted in 1869. And in terms of the authority of the U.S. Supreme Court, that is what it what it does, what it covers um, to interpret the Constitution and the laws. It wasn't until the seminal case you may have heard of Marbury versus Madison in 1803 that the court first recognized that it has the power to say what the law is. And this is a really important role for this court. Like as Sarah said, it decides on such pivotal issues um, what the law is, what how should the Constitution be interpreted and our Uh, Some of our rights have flown from from that. Um, This is a really critical role in our democracy and our rule of law and our system of checks and balances to have the court as this third branch that gets to interpret the the law. Um, I'll stop there and see if you guys have any further questions or anything you want us to add. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, Because I I see the, the immense power of the Supreme Court. And as I was doing, you know, research, you know, the Constitution doesn't, you know, give the Supreme Court, you know, the power of judicial review. Clearly, it's not one of the enumerated rights. It's just somewhat of a precedent that the court has kind of taken over based off of decisions. 
And I think of the impact because, you know, we I think we talked about it last year when the Supreme Court struck down some of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, we've talked about, you know, va- uh, vaccine mandates and even different state legislation. So clearly, the Supreme Court has a lot of power. But one of the things I want to kind of hit on, because they were talking about this um, uh, at the hearing, but they were talking about this idea of, you know, a living constitution. And, and I really think that that's an important concept. I, you know, I know a lot of the uh, judge, justices on the Supreme Court have more of an originalist um, kind of uh, viewpoint. But whenever I think about a lot of the issues of that, that the founders could not have even foreseen and all of the innovation that we've had as a country, it, it almost seems to me like, you know, a living document makes sense, not to mention the injustices that we've had to have amendments to actually correct. So, uh, Zanel, you can start this one off. But when you look at, you know, the Constitution and this idea of, you know, a living document versus just being an originalist, you know, how does that come into your mind and how does that play into court decisions? Yeah, so really good question and very important. Um, I think it's safe to say that over the court's history, the institution's ideological approaches toward interpreting the law and decisions on cases have shifted. And thank goodness for that. There are periods of time in which the court's decisions recognize constitutional rights and times when they deny rights to people, particularly rights for historically marginalized groups like people of color, women, LGBTQ plus people. The court has a really interesting history. filled with plenty of bad decisions, resulting in a lot of damage throughout its history. And so it's very good that it has to think about where the times that it finds itself in, uh, changes in our society and and, uh, other issues at large. Um, I'll go specifically to, for example, in 1857, the court held that the U.S. Constitution did not include citizenship for enslaved or free people of African descent in Dred Scott v. Sanford. Um, superseded, of course, later by the 13th Amendment. So one of the amendments that you're talking about, Adrian, Plessy v. Ferguson allowed state-sponsored racial segregation under a reading of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause that permitted separate but equal facil- uh, facilities. Um, de facto overturned, of course, by Brown v. Board of Education um, and, and other cases. Um, and then, of course, in the 1944, Karamatsu versus the United States, the court upheld internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, finding that the need to protect against espionage outweighed the individual rights of American citizens. And then you referenced Shelby County v. Holder in 2013. Those decisions have led directly to mounting voter suppression we're seeing across our country. The Supreme Court has also blessed partisan gerrymandering, which is having enormous consequences in some states as redistribution takes place. So we've seen a lot of, like you said, really important issues where the court has ruled. And this has happened over time. And so Uh, The court has to interpret, um, depending on what circumstances are, thinking of what it's faced with, and hopefully shifting in a a more um, direction where it's for the people, which is its origin. And when you talk about originalism versus living constitution, it's very interesting how you hear uh, those debates. And, you know, people are originalists when they want to be uh, on certain issues. But actually, originalism to me um, invokes the the basic rights that we should have. Um, And I'd like to see that interpreted a little little more to bend in the direction of, of all people so that we have equality for all. I think it's interesting hearing you talk about some of these 
instances where the Supreme Court really in a way kind of looks like the protector of what we would say is bad policy or policy that discriminates against certain people. I think a lot there are there is a segment of the country that really looks at the Supreme Court as the protector of bad policy. We just talked about the voting rights um, issues. We, we talk about campaign finance reform was a big issue that we, you know, a lot of people point to as well. So, but I, I did want to go back to Sarah's point about the fact that we do, we are a democracy or representative, you know, Republic, whatever you want to call it. It's a democracy. Our leaders are elected, but the fact that we do have nine people in this country who do have a lifetime appointment, is that sort of contradictory in a democracy to have something like that? I wanted to kind of get your take on that, Zanel. And what do you, not to ask you to take a, a personal stance here, but just, is it contradictory to have, you know, nine people who have such enormous power have a lifetime appointment in a country that calls itself a democracy? Right. So, you know, I can speak directly to that because my organization has taken a position that they should not have lifetime tenure, that (laughs) that um, it should be limited. And part of that is exactly to the heart of your question on on democracy. It's nine people with incredible power for a really long time. And you see how long they hold on even to um, fall into death while while in that position. Um, You know, the original argument for it in part was. Actually, it helps with democracy because it depoliticizes the system in in, um, respect that they sit through multiple presidents, multiple administrations, um, but we see how politicized it it is and has become. Um, And I want to go back, Devin, for for a minute, or at least ask that we come back to it at some point. I outlined for you a number of terrible decisions by the Supreme Court, but there are some very favorable decisions that have come over time as well. So if we have time in this segment, I would love to go back and and share some of those. And I'm sure Sarah has some as well, but I I don't want to derail your your schedule here. I mean, I think, no, it's important to make sure that we give a balanced, you know, perspective of what the court is doing. I think it's very easy to point out where they may have gotten it wrong. But I do think it is important to maybe look back and say, okay, there were some things that they did. The court ruled favorably and the rest of the country agrees with it. I mean, Sarah, I know you are more reform minded in your approach to in in looking at the court. But what I guess would you say are some instances where you say, you know, the court got it right here. And and I'm glad they actually, you agree with the decisions that they were making. Well, you know, one of the issues that my organization works on is surveillance um, and being concerned about overbroad government surveillance. And this, I think, kind of goes back to what Zanel was talking about concerning originalism, right? Like, all right. So when the Fourth Amendment was adopted that prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures, Um, certainly the idea that we would have these mobile devices in our pockets that contain that were that are tiny computers that hold all of the information about our lives and really sort of sensitive data um, about ourselves and our friends and our family, uh, you know, that was inconceivable. So how does the Fourth Amendment apply then apply here in, in 2022? And so a couple of years ago, a case came before the court that was a question of, okay, if you arrest an individual and you search them incident to that arrest, does that mean that you also get to search the contents of their cell phone? Um, and the court said, no, that is, that is not what the fourth amendment would, um, or that is what the fourth amendment would protect. 
And that in order to obtain that kind of sensitive data that's contained into a cell phone, even though it is just found on your person when you are arrested, um, that that is that that is the kind of material that the Fourth Amendment is meant to protect. And that if the government wants it, they got to get a warrant. So, you know, you had plenty of originalists, quote, on the court who um, were in the majority of that decision. But I think there's certainly an argument that that's a kind of living constitution sort of analysis in a way. Um, and, you know, as an LGBTQ person myself, I would certainly point to um, the Obergefell decision as uh, a vital one to protect the, the equality of, um, you know, all Americans and, and to protect the right, you know, the, the right to marry. Um, I would look back, another issue that my organization works on um, was uh about indefinite detention and what was happening after September 11th and the opening of Guantanamo and CIA black sites across the world that were um, detaining individuals indefinitely without trial. And, um, you know, the court issued a couple of decisions uh, during during that time that, you know, did state that these these individuals do have access to our federal court system, that we can, that we can't have uh, a system where people are um, incarcerated indefinitely without any access to courts whatsoever. Now, what I don't know if those decisions would come out the same way today as they did back in 2005, um, and that's probably something for us to talk about. Uh, but, you know, there's, um, you know, so those are some in recent memory. And of course, you can go back to 19, um, 1952 and Brown v. Board of Education. Um, and I mean, this is, yeah, and, you know, I was thinking of, of issues in like very recent memory, but, um, you know, this, this was a case obviously that had an enormous impact on, um, and that was absolutely vital to protect the rights of, of, of people of color, um, and what I think would be interesting for us to talk a little bit is sort of what has been maybe the response to that decision and why we see why, you know, but I, I would I, I would suggest that it has been since Brown that we have seen sort of this extraordinary backlash on the court um, and and a number of decisions that actually came down during the same era as Brown v. Board of Education that really tried to protect the rights of people in the American criminal legal system. Um, you know, that was the same time that we also got, um, we that uh, Gideon v. Rain, Wainwright was decided, which actually affirmed that people do have the right to an attorney um, irrespective of their ability to pay for it. Um, there were a number of decisions during that time of Brown and under the Warren court, under Chief Justice Earl Warren, um, that was a very, that was more of a rights affirming time um, but after the end of his tenure at the court, I think we've started to see and we continue to see sort of this almost like anti-rights backlash. And that is what I would suggest that, you know, is kind of the composition of the court that we're looking to today. And, you know, that's an interesting kind of way to look at it um, and something that I, I look at as far as, you know, some people find certain decisions favorable or unfavorable, depending on the party or depending on if this is something that helps and advocates for a position that they want. Because clearly, like Sarah was talking about listeners, 
uh, Brown uh, versus Board of Education did something that was great. Uh, there may have been some people who thought it was an unfavorable decision, and that may get some of the backlash that Sarah's talking about. So that's a really, really interesting perspective to bring and give us some context. But um, we're going to give our listeners a break here, but we're going to make sure that we keep this conversation hot, keep it going. Um, we've covered a lot within this first segment, but we still got more to cover with the partisanship of the Supreme Court. So listeners, stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give a few dollars while you're at it. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Now let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into it here. Our second segment. Remember, we got two guests today. First, Sarah Tuberville, director of the Constitution Project at the Project on Government Oversight, and Zanel October, executive vice president at the American Constitution Society. And like I said, listeners, our second segment is about the partisanship of the Supreme Court. And, you know, whenever I think about partisanship, you know, it's definitely a tough position, I feel like, for the court, because obviously they're not um, publicly claiming to be a Democrat or a Republican, um, but they are appointed by, you know, Democratic presidents or Republican presidents. And we've even seen where there are Democratic justices who side with their Republican counterparts and vice versa. So clearly there's a lot of different things that happen here. But one of the things that I think you know, think about the law because I'm getting ready to go to law school. They always talk about this perception of law and different things like that. And even that can be, you know, flawed and even that can be wrong. So, um, Sarah, I don't know if you want to start this off. Whenever I think about that perception, you know, would it be better if justices were just appointed by some sort of nonpartisan committee rather than an actual president who has an agenda and has a position? You think that would maybe make the American people feel more comfortable? It's a it's a good question. I think it's it's obvious that the system we have now is fundamentally broken, um, and I think that the idea of moving to a more sort of merit based appointment process would would certainly be better. I mean, there's a number of if you look to the states, there's a number of states that actually commission. Um, either sort of bipartisan or nonpartisan uh, groups to, to identify, recruit, vet uh, judicial candidates and ultimately make recommendations to the person who's ultimately responsible for nominating like a governor. So, um, and you can even look back to, you know, history in the, in the federal courts in the U.S. Um, under President Carter, there was a dramatic expansion of the federal judiciary of the lower of the lower court judges in our in our federal court system. So the district courts, which are like trial courts, and then the circuit courts, which are courts of appeal, um, uh, across uh, across uh, eleven districts in uh, across the United States. And what he decided to do to fill all of those judgeships that he created was to um, outsource it completely to a group of um, lawyers, experts who could vet candidates and make recommendations to the president um, so that he was receiving 
input that was about individuals' qualifications, commitment to public service, um, you know, their, um, you know, their, their, the richness of their uh, professional uh, history, their, their own personal diversity, um, all of those various considerations. And then ultimately it was the president's job to, to nominate because that's what, that's what the, the constitution provides. So um, there is a model for a better system than what we have. Uh, but I think that there are some, some impediments that we face sort of politically, structurally, that make it very difficult for a president to take a route like that. I mean, I think partisanship, while I think you, I think you may have mentioned it earlier that having the lifetime appointment back then, at least the, the, the thought was that by making it a lifetime appointment, you wouldn't have partisanship seep into the system because they're going to be there for their entire lifetime. But I, you know, like everything, it seems like in the country, partisan partisanship has this way of seeping into the system and, and kind of clogging it up. And and we know now, I think most Amer- Americans know that justice justices are not picked because the president believes that they're going to be independent on all rulings. They're, they're choosing them because they agree with them ide- ideologically, not, you know, they don't identify as a Democrat or, or a Republican, but they want to know where they stand on certain issues. And that's how they're they're judged. So that process in its way kind of sort of is partisan, you know? So the question I had though, is that we've seen over the last 40 to 50 years, Supreme court nominations have become increasingly tense, controversial. Um, I think a lot of people point to Robert Bork as being like one of the most controversial, uh, a failed nomination uh, by Ronald Reagan, but the perception, regardless is of SCOTUS, uh, is the fact that it is partisan. A lot of people do believe it is a partisan institution. So, Zanel, I mean, is it a fair accusation, you know, for Americans and other, even even politicians, to accuse the court of being a a partisan institution? Well, I mean, I I do think it's it's fair as we've seen, and considering especially the point in history in which we find ourselves. And we talked earlier about the Supreme Court not having always got it right and throughout its history, perhaps too often cited with the status quo and powerful interests. I think the average person doesn't see themselves in the court. Public perception of the current court is declining, and this is particularly troubling. Um, just to give a, a quick poll that, that we've seen recently, public polling suggests that faith in the court is at an historic low. In one poll, only 16% of people thought the Supreme Court justices do an excellent or good job keeping their political views out of their decisions. And certainly when we see something like we did this past week with airing the grievances and being very political in the hearings for Judge Jackson, and we'll get into that later, so I'll save it for then, it comes across as very partisan um, and one where people do not have faith in the system that we that we have. Um, this isn't a new or uniquely modern problem, but the politicization of the court has accelerated in years, I would say, in recent years. Um, we'll talk about some of the court reform, possible court reforms later. And so we can think about what would a better system look like. You started mentioning some some ways already. Um, but, you know, I, I just in recent history, I go back to the nomination uh, by President Obama of then Judge Merrick Garland, now our attorney general, to fill Justice Scalia's seat. 
if that wasn't a glaring light of politicization and people losing into, uh, a lack of respect for the courts, I don't I don't know what is. Um, it's it's a manipulation of the process to pack the court that way, and it erodes the court's legitimacy. And then you look at Justice Kavanaugh, who's on the on the court now, um, under tremendous cloud of suspicion um, during his his nomination process, um, and got on, and even with such aggression and under claims of sexual assault. Um, and then you look at how this. Uh, Republican-controlled Senate confirm Amy Conant Barrett uh, leading up to the election following the, the passing of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They rushed it through in very quick weeks, right before the 2021 presidential election, while people were casting ballots for President Biden. So you look at all of this, and what else could you think but it's a political process? They want to get the, the person in there that they think would um, carry their agenda uh, forward, and people lose respect and um, integrity and, and thinking about the court as this nonpartisan place. It just isn't when you see things like that. You know, but before we, but I was, was going to say before we, I was, I wanted to dig off a little deeper into the the fairness thing because sometimes I I look at it that you know when we talk when we think about you know Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Comey Barrett, or even some of these other things, you know sometimes it's that you know it's you know it's kind of going back to what Zanelle was talking about in the first segment about you know some things being favorable and unfavorable, and it's like you know. Clearly, there were a lot of people who were not favoring those two candidates or some of the other different things that the court is doing. So it's like I almost I almost almost don't know how to look at the, the fairness of assessing partisanship, because sometimes it's like we don't even think about the court being partisan until it does something that we don't agree with. And then it's like, oh, the court's really partisan. But you know, I don't. I don't know if that is how we. If that's maybe Sarah, I know you were going to pick up with some stuff, but maybe you can kind of throw that in with what you were going to say. Well, yeah, I think it's relevant, and that's that. You know, I agree with everything that Zanel just described. Um, and and what also has happened is that, like Supreme Court selection, has become incredibly salient in electoral politics. Right, so you have presidents running on who they would select to fill a vacancy on the court. Um, You've got members of Congress stating that, you know, well, we'll see what happens at the Supreme Court. Um, You know, I I think it's, if you look at what the three challenges to the Affordable Care Act that have gone up to the Supreme Court, right? I mean, each of those was was sort of a, 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 explicit admission in in some ways that people are using the court to try to effectuate change that they're not able to do um, at the electoral level to, you know, in, in the Congress, because it's far easier to have to convince five people than it is to convince, you know, a majority of, of members of the house of representatives. And of course, a supermajority because of the filibuster of, of senators. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that is another sort of layer on this that I think has amplified the partisanship is that it has become something that people run on in, in our political system. You know, one thing I wanted to, to mention, you, you mentioned it um, earlier, Sarah, about the fact that some of 
the the way that people look at the court and the mistrust is sort of part of a backlash that people had to the decisions that were made in the 50s and even you know and afterwards that gave rights to people who had been chronically marginalized and and did away or put guardrails in place against discrimination against certain groups and i think you know and i wanted to kind of dig into that and see if you think obviously obviously you said that you know that's part of the mistrust that people uh, have against the court but i think it's it's interesting too and i believe that's why the two parties view supreme court nominations really differently like republican voters do care a lot more about Supreme Court nominations and Supreme Court decisions. It is a much bigger um, thing on the list of things that their voters are looking for. And you see it during the hearings and how Republican senators ask questions. They're throwing red meat for a reason because they know that their base cares about this process. Whereas on the Democratic side, not that they don't care, but it is not an issue that Democratic vote that drives Democratic voters to the polls. Although they are speaking about it more, it just in the democratic realm it just doesn't drive voter support it doesn't drive people to the polls and i think w- the reason why republican voters attached to the court so much is because what kind of what you mentioned Sarah, about the fact that the court used to be the protector of bad policy and the protector of the dominant white society by making sure that certain things were in place you know separate but equal and uh you know you know stopping interracial marriage and things like that. Like those things used to be in place, but the court isn't doing that anymore. The country has moved forward and the court has also moved. And so I think a lot of people are now, particularly on the Republican side, are very much worried about the Supreme Court and wanting to stack it and make sure that that ideology that wants to keep those guardrails in place to keep certain groups where they are, are kept in place. And so I don't know, what's your kind of take on that? And, you know, Zanel, if you want to give your kind of theory, if you agree or disagree, I just thinking about it and hearing Sarah talk about it earlier, I see a through line to the current state of the Republican Party and where we are with Supreme Court nominations. Do you do you kind of agree with that assessment? I, I do. I, I think it's a little more nuanced than that, too, um, Devin. I think the Republican Party unites around the Supreme Court in part because they focus on singular issues, right? You talk about abortion and wanting to overturn that in every way possible, which alert, we're about to get a very bad decision from this Supreme Court on that very issue. Um, And so they're really good about messaging around that and focusing on that. And I think on the other side, you see a group that is multifaceted, has many issues. And um, I think progressives, Democrats have to do a better job of connecting the Supreme Court to people's everyday lives and the issues that they care about. Almost every issue that progressives care about are shaped by our, our courts. And that connection doesn't quite always happen. I mean, my organization works to make that happen more uh, because people do need to care about it. And I'm so glad that you two are hosting this episode so that we can get your audience to really think about this as well. Um, but I, I, I do think what you've said is, is generally right. Um, but I, I just wanted to throw in the messaging issue as well. Sarah, do you, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I I think about this concept that, um, you know, some Supreme Court scholars refer to as asymmetrical hardball, right? And so, and that's, 
And so we've, we've seen that there has been this sort of like death spiral in the Supreme Court confirmation process where like, you know, it's just sort of this, this race to the bottom with um, how that process has deteriorated. And it is due to a lot of factors, but one of them is that, um, you know, I think Republicans have traditionally been sort of rewarded almost for engaging in these hardball tactics. Um, So, you know, you know, Leader McConnell was was expecting that by holding up the Supreme Court nomination of Merrick Garland, that his party would be rewarded at the polls for that. And he was right. Um, So so there's that piece of it, too. Now, look, I don't think hardball like constitutional hardball with the Supreme Court is a good idea at all. I'm not suggesting that, like, you know, to that there ought to be a you know, evening of that playing field or whatever. But I think what you end up in is this, um, a process like we saw unfold with Judge Brown Jackson last week, where you've got an eminently qualified judge um, who had already been confirmed twice by most of these people, um, including several of them that were, you know, alluding to the fact that they did not intend to vote for her confirmation to be on the Supreme Court. Um, all of that is sort of an indicator that the that that hardball works. Um, and, you know, that's why I'm, you know, I'm so interested in the reform conversation, because I think what you have to do is shift the incentives so people are no longer incentivized to engage in that kind of conduct with Supreme Court confirmation. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting perspective. And, and I'm glad, you know, we're going to shift in the next um, uh, segment to actually talk kind of about, you know, what Judge Jackson went through in, in, in relation to what that is, you know, for a nominee, because that's, that's a really interesting perspective, changing the incentive, because as I looked um, at the question, or rather listened to the questions of the senators, uh, it definitely seemed like their incentives were off as far as what they were trying to do and what they were trying to get out of that. So I'm glad you brought that up, Sarah. But listeners, we're going to give you another break. When we come back, we're going to get into our third segment. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, IG, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back to it. Let's get into our third segment here. Remember, we're joined today by Zanel October, Executive Vice President at the American Constitution Society, and Sarah Tuberville, Director of the Constitution Project at the Project on Government Oversight. And like I said, listeners, we wanted to talk a little bit about the nomination process and to talk about what uh, Judge Jackson went through. And, you know, one of the things that I wanted to, you know, kind of start off with was the fact that obviously Judge Jackson is the first uh, African-American female uh, nominee to potentially be the first on the on the bench. And, you know, I looked at the Republican side that kind of, you know, almost seemed like they were ready to fight. And then the Democrats were just ready to go ahead and endorse him and put it in there that day. 
and and I can't remember if the Democrats were really coming after Justice Barrett in the same way that Republicans were coming after uh, Justice or Judge uh, Jackson. But um, Zanelle, you can kind of start us off here. Just looking at different nominee processes, um, was there a difference, you know, having a, a black woman, you know, sitting in that chair versus, you know, a white woman or anybody else for that matter? There was a huge difference <laughs> in last week's hearings. Um, it was really deplorable what many on the um, on the right did to Judge Jackson. She is eminently qualified. It is beyond dispute that she is well qualified, would make an excellent justice. Um, as Sarah mentioned, she's been confirmed uh, before twice for our courts and once for the U.S. Sentencing Commission um, by many of these same people. She's written nearly 600 opinions. Um, her value and her expertise and experience that she would bring to this court are incredible. This court has never had a former public defender, which, by the way, is a really important role to our Constitution in guaranteeing the right to counsel, so should be uplifted and not demonized. Um, it hasn't happened to this level. The, the level of disrespect that was shown, distorting um, Judge Jackson's character, the smears and character assassinations um, were really terrible. And I'll, I'll also say this is for a lifetime appointment, as we discussed earlier. It is not meant to be an easy process. It should be rigorous, right? Because you want to get to the bottom of uh, the person's judicial philosophy, how they would be on the, the court. But this was this went beyond that. Um, a rigorous process is not the same as an abusive process. And that's what we saw last week. And I'll tell you, just sitting there and watching it, which I was glued to every piece of it, as first a human being, and then as a Black woman and lawyer, it, it, it was really hurtful to, to see. But all credit to Judge Jackson. She did an incredible job, way better than I would have done, way better than most people would have done in keeping her, her temperament and uh, focusing on answering repeatedly. I mean, the disrespect of cutting her off, not letting her answer. There's just there's so many levels we could we could go on here. But no, that was not a usual process to answer your, your question shortly. And, and And Sarah, just to kind of give you a chance to kind of Tell us yeah. your perspective. What did you see watching? I don't, you know, I don't know if you watched the whole thing, but what was your take on on uh, Judge Brown Jackson's uh, nomination process? I don't know what more I could add from what Vanell described. Um, it was it it was embarrassing, um, and. There, there were a handful of moments where there was some uh, useful, you know, information that was, um, you know, that surfaced from some of the questioning. You know, I think that it was good for the discussion to happen around um, her probably needing to recuse from um, the Harvard admissions case. I mean, those, I think there's a serious problem with the um uh you know recusal process at the supreme court and so i was i was sort of happy to see that be elevated but 
Um, it it also just struck me as so um, unnecessary, given what we know about the composition of the court right now. Um, you know, she is she is filling a seat that looks to be a a three a potential three person minority in a number of cases to a six person majority. So so that really um, you know for me that just sort of underscores again that all of this is about electoral politics. I think that was that's kind of the reason for my next question, which is the purpose of these hearings in this this process that we go through, as we have said before, we've kind of been in a downward spiral. These have turned really into like spectacles of watching senators grandstand, throwing red meat out there, saying some of the most ridiculous things just to get the moment to be famous and, you know, to increase their notoriety for a possible run at the the highest office in the land as president. Um, But my, you know, and so I had the same question of like, are these hearings even really necessary? Like how much information are we getting out of this? And, and, and to go even further, we have seen the nominees respond and and not answer questions really. Like they're just avoiding, I was over half the questions and we're not getting anything substantive, substantive out of it to see how they would even rule as a justice. So it's kind of like, well, what's the point of this? If we're not going to get anything out of this to see how they're going to rule on the court, why are we doing this? And so my question, I guess, was to take a step back from that and just what was the original purpose of even having Supreme Court hearings? And do you believe it's still serving its purpose? And now um, you can start us off with that. Just I know we talked about what happened this last week, but just going even further back to Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, even Robert Bork, we can go back there. What is the purpose of Supreme Court hearings? And do you think they're even, you know, are they still serving their purpose? Um, I don't think they're still serving their purpose. And that's a shame. I, I find it to be a real missed opportunity, um, especially as they're televised and we can all get a glimpse into um the judges thinking. I I agree the judges shouldn't answer direct questions of controversies that might come before them because again, going to um, the integrity of the court and the public's perception that they will get a fair day in court and be fully heard based on their circumstances. You don't want to judge their saying, and this is how I would rule, or this is what I think about it, because they are supposed to approach the the case with open ears and and eyes. I wouldn't say do away with the process. I would say it needs to be pulled in. It hasn't always been um, this deplorable. Um, And in fact, um, you know, Justice Ginsburg, um, Justice Scalia, they all got very close votes to uh, 100, not quite 100, but um, of all the senators where they really were involved getting to what their philosophy is, what's their judicial philosophy, philosophy, how do they approach um, cases generally, what's the method, um, what have they uh, done in the past, and, and maybe why to the extent that they could answer it. It could be an opportunity, Devin, I wouldn't want to throw it all <laughs> out. This just lately, especially with how partisan things have become, we haven't taken advantage of that that opportunity. So there's an an opportunity to really dig deeper and get at the heart of what we need. Again, 
these are lifetime appointments. And I do think that the public needs to see who this person is. We only have nine of them. We want to know who this really powerful person, possible next addition to the court uh, is. And that's their one moment to do that, because after that, judges' lives are, are quite um, private and closed off. And even the Supreme Court itself, not currently televised, at least, you don't quite get a glimpse into the, the court. You get to read the opinions later if they have one. Um, so it, I, I do think it's the it's an opportunity that we shouldn't throw out. We should just think about how we reimagine it. So in, in that vein, Sarah, Zanel says not to throw it out. So we're going to go with that. No, it's playing. <laughs> I, I agree. I just, you know, I question it watching it live. But in the moment, it was just like, Ugh. but Sarah, I know we talked about incentives. And so there are senators who are involved in this process. And of course, we know it has become very partisan. So the incentive is to get your moment and try to either get the gotcha moment of the nominee, or if you're a senator who has aspirations to one day be you know, president or something like that, this is a humongous opportunity. So do you, what do you think about the hearings and just the way that they're structured right now? Do you think they are still serving their purpose and, you know, should we get rid of them or keep them or, or tweak it? Well, I think it requires much more than tweaking. Um, and the hearing is only the part that the public sees, right? Like there's a, there's, a lot that happens behind the scenes before the president agree, you know, announces his, his nomination. Um, and, you know, that process has also been captured to, to some degree as well. Um, and, and that's even sort of more concerning, right? Because that is, that is so opaque. Um, you might've heard of um a guy named Don McGahn, who was the White House counsel under President Trump, who was responsible for shepherding Brett Kavanaugh's nomination through. And, um, you know, uh, Don McGahn is a is a longtime um, Federalist Society member and had has been asked on the record before, you know, what do you say to this? this criticism that the, the president has outsourced this nomination process to the Federalist Society. And he said, no, 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 he hasn't outsourced it. He's insourced it. Um, and, you know, and, and the purpose of that is so that, that um, he could be sure that there could be an assurance um, that this person who would be nominated could be a relied upon um, ideologue, right? Because they're, because if you look back at the history, you know, if you go back to like the 1960s and look at the num, you know, presidents who have had an opportunity to nominate a Supreme Court justice, um, Republican presidents have had like a two to one monopoly over the process just by happenstance, right? Just because that's when a vacancy has arisen, even though Republicans and Democrats have like occupied the White House at approximately the same number of years during that whole time, during the span of the last 60 years. Um, but a number of those Republican nominees had turned out to be, in, in the view of some Republicans and conservatives, these ciphers who could not ultimately be relied upon, right? Like John Paul Stevens was a 
who, you know, I think a lot of a folks now look to as more of a liberal justice. Um, he, he was appointed by a Republican president, right? Um, the swing justice Kennedy was appointed by a Republican president. Now people are even saying John Roberts is a swing vote. He was appointed by a Republican president. So, um, you know, uh, I, I think that 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 the randomness of the vacancies has has given rise to sort of that that kind of monopoly. And so I think that that's another reason to support lifetime, you know, the end of lifetime tenure um, so that we can more routinize like when these vacancies arise. I because agree. It, because it becomes a no holes barred like. <laughs> you know, competition whenever you've got in, you know, a, a vacancy. Um, but, but what ends up happening with, because we've watched the evolution of some of these people who have been on the bench for 30 years, um, you know, re- Republicans, and, and I'm picking on Republicans mainly because they have, they, they are very good at doing this. I'd be picking on Democrats. If the Democrats were, had been very, very good at doing this too. Um, but Republicans have been very good at now sort of making that that um, winnowing process where people actually come to the president's attention to become a nominee, that they can be certain about who that person is and can be a lot more sure about what they're going to do on the bench. And they also, of course, tend to be um, younger as well. Like that's become a criteria because you want these people to be able to live as long as possible for their time on the bench. Yeah. Which was such an interesting perspective, or uh, interesting point that I thought with, you know, uh, justice Barrett, cause you know, I think she was very, very young and, you know, with lifetime appointment. Um, I think that's, that's interesting. Um, and as I watched the hearing, it was, it was funny because I was at work and my, my boss, she was laughing at um, how I met your father and I was laughing at the hearing. I just felt, you know, kind of nerdy, but I was just like, it's kind of ridiculous what the Republicans are doing because it's like, you know, they're asking uh, judge Jackson about critical race theory. And she's like, you know, I'm not even concerned about that. That's not even something that we've even elevated to, you know, to the Supreme court level. I'm staying in my lane and they're talking about, you know, her sentencing uh, record and child pornography. And I felt like that was just really too, uh, demonize her and try to make the American people see that, you know, maybe she's not the best person for the job. So I, I you know, I am definitely an advocate that this process should probably be reformed. Uh, and I'm glad that our next segment is actually going to be talking about reforms, uh, but really talking about reforms for the court. Oh, Zanel, I saw you. Go, go ahead. Jump in there. Yeah, I want to jump in just to add a, a, a point that I, I don't want to get lost on the listeners. Um, so. The Supreme Court nominees are selected by the president, right? Nominated by whoever's the current president and then confirmed by the U.S. Senate. So those are 100 people. And so I want your listeners to think about who gets to choose the judges, because you have to think of all of these people in part of this the process. And the point is not lost on me that of the 100 senators who are going to vote, on whether Judge Jackson should be a lifetime judge or not, not one of them is a black woman. And that's because today, as we sit in 2022, we don't have one black female on the Supreme on the, the Senate. 
And so that's part of the process that people need to be thinking about too. Who's our president? Who do we elect? Who sits on our Senate? How do we elect them? And, and thinking about this at the time of elections also. Just wanted to throw that point in. No, I'm glad you you jumped in there because I, I, I hope at this point in the conversation, our listeners have picked up on the fact that with all the power that the Supreme Court has, um, maybe they should be, you know, maybe directly elected by the people or something different. I'm not saying that's what you're suggesting, but just saying that, you know, it is very interesting to see how they are chosen uh, and we don't necessarily get a direct say, even though they're going to have a direct say in a lot of different things that um, are going to influence our lives. So thank you, Zanel, for bringing that up. But listeners, we got one more segment before we let Sarah and Zanel go. We got to talk about how we can reform what we've got here. So uh, if you've been itching and ready to go on how you're going to do some call to actions, make sure you stick with us for this next segment. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to a scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, become a monthly patron. Go to blackagendapod.com and click the donate tab or click donate under the timestamps as you're listening to the podcast. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, we're getting into our last segment here. Remember, we got two great guests, Sarah Tupperville and Zanel October with us today. And our fourth segment is about Supreme Court reforms. And uh, Sarah, let's start off with you here. Um, one reform that I saw, I think this was from two professors from the University of Chicago. Um, they were talking about having like some sort of super majority, like a seven to two vote of the Supreme Court versus the five four to kind of help with this whole idea of amending judicial review, because we've kind of established that that's a great power to strike down laws. I don't know if this is a dangerous territory to take away judicial review for them, because I think that there are some things that the executive branch has done and the legislative branch has done that we may not have liked. So when you think about this supermajority or taking away judicial review, what sort of reforms come into play in your mind? So I think it, it's important for us to figure out how we want to frame like the problem. Um, and I, you know, I worked with a, a task force of former state and federal court judges last year, and we issued a report called above the fray that really looked at this issue of Supreme court selection um, to try to figure out like what is the core of the problem that we're trying to solve. And, and ultimately how our group came to describe it is that we have a court where the justices hold, there's too few of them who hold too much power for too long. Um, And that all of these like terrible consequences flow from that fact and so if you it, and so what we could do to try to get the temperature turned down on um, Supreme Court confirmations um, is to sort of shift those incentives and to and to make it so that one individual justice doesn't possess so much power. Um, I. I understand the rationale behind the idea that, you know, one way to do that would be to make it so that if the 
court is going to strike down an act of Congress is unconstitutional, that it would require a supermajority vote of, say, 6-3 or something like that. Um, I'm not sure how far that gets us because um, that I think you could very much end up with people still playing a lot of politics with those nine, right? To say like, okay, now it's really important that we have our seven on the court or our six on the court. Um, Whereas if you were to do something like end lifetime tenure, (laughs) and I think this is where Zanella and I are probably on on almost the exact same page, not to speak for you now, but, um, but, you know, the idea of moving to a single term, a long term of 18 years so that justices can still, we can all still benefit from like the accumulation of wisdom that justices get from being on the court and hearing variety of cases and dealing with a variety of circumstances um, would still, would still come to fruition. Um, but it would also, though, you know, it it would no longer allow any party to sort of try to entrench their power for a period of time that far outlasts that that party's period in power, right? So, um, so now we've got a situation where we try to get the youngest justices possible on the court because we're hoping that they're going to be able to serve for forty or fifty years, and they can bring that ideology that they have that sort of maps on to like our partisan divide prettily um, onto the court. And, and that's a way to sort of entrench power for a really, really long time. So um, to me, that's one of the biggest benefits that could come from, from having an 18 year term limit. 18 years is sort of based on the idea that there would still be nine justices on the court because it would be a staggered term where there would be essentially each president would get an opportunity every four years to nominate two justices is how it would work out in, in practice over time. Um, but let me pause there. And, and <laughs> no, you're fine. I was <laughs> going to ask uh, Janelle and picking up on that. Cause I know Sarah said that we need to turn down the temperature on the Supreme court, take away some of that power and that focus. Do you, do you think that, you know, either amending or taking away judicial review or supermajority is that dangerous or is that going to do something to turn down the heat maybe listen um my organization is open to any and all of these reforms (laughs) (laughs) we we really are because there we are facing such a legitimacy crisis um that's threatened our democracy quite frankly when people do not have faith in our our Supreme Court, that's a problem because as as we've discussed here, it's trusted to uphold constitutional rights, democratic principles, judicial norms. Um, and so we're we're open to any and and all of these reforms. The exact number of of justices we're open to, <laughs> as we listen to different proposals that are that are out there. We're not fixed on any particular um, any particular number. Um, the life tenure we spoke about that earlier. Um, having fixed terms in in some way, um, perhaps adding some seats to the court uh, would also be open to that. Um, it's just right now decisions that impact the lives of millions of people are just decided by a single swing vote. That's that's too much power. I I agree with Sarah on on that. 
Um, there are also some non-structural reform, reform proposals um, that would address a variety of issues pertaining to the court's credibility and legitimacy. Um, and many of these can be pursued simultaneously. However, I want to emphasize that none of them will solve the legitimacy crisis facing the court unless they're combined with meaningful mm -hmm. structural reforms that redress the rights packing of the court by feeling two seats. Um, and so we're open to a, a few of these. Uh, the code of ethics would be something that uh, <laughs> the court needs to have as well. Um, narrowing the use of shadow docket to prevent the court from using this emergency process for issuing decisions with sweeping consequences for the public and without written explanations. People need to know why um, so that you can rely on such precedent in the in the future. So those are just a, a few more kind of to to add to what Sarah's saying, but totally agree. Yeah, go ahead, Sarah. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to pick up on this um, thread about a code of conduct because, you know, something that might be surprising for your listeners to learn is that the Supreme Court of the United States, right, like the most powerful court in the land whose decisions can affect the lives of millions of people, um, has no code of conduct. Unlike every other court in the country, lower federal courts, state, state judiciaries, all judges except Supreme Court justices have to adhere to a code of conduct. Um, it's just, it's mind blowing. Um, and, you know, there's some ethics rules that do apply to the justices that, you know, like the Ethics and Government Act that explains, you know, instances in which they should disqualify themselves or recuse themselves from a case. Um, but then we also have the problem of enforcement. And, you know, I think that we saw at the end of, of last week with this really damning information that came out about Justice Clarence Thomas's wife having texted the chief of staff at the White House 29 times um, about the election, seeking to overturn the 2020 election. And yet he sat on a case about whether or not um, information about the insurrection was going to get from the White House was going to get released to the January 6th committee in the House of Representatives. Um, and so it's clear he would have violated the disqualification statute, but what's the enforcement? We're left with impeachment. Um, and so we're stuck in this place between like total impunity and impeachment. Um, and so that is something that a code of conduct can help bridge to some degree because we could at least have um, some, some specific guidance articulated for the Supreme Court and the and those kind of unique circumstances and problems that exist in, in conflicts that can arise at that court, um, you know, given the the uh, importance of its decision making. Um, so I, I and, and it's something that is 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 a little more practical. Right. Ending lifetime tenure arguably requires a constitutional amendment. I don't think it does, but a lot of people think it does. Um, so but a Supreme Court code of conduct, that's something that Congress could could require the court to do. I think it's you know, it's, it's interesting, interesting to hear all the possible reforms. I think there is a lot of support for. The 18-year term limits, you know, even President Biden commissioned a, a panel to study, you know, ways to 
reformed the court. And what they found was that there was bipartisan support for the 18 year term limit. So not saying it's going to happen, but there's a possibility. It is a real discussion we're having right now. So just before we wrap up, I just wanted to kind of get as we look into the future, we're looking towards elections this year coming in October, uh, coming in November, excuse me. And we also have 2024 and beyond. What do you think? And uh, Sarah, you can start it off. What do you think really is the likelihood that we're going to see some real structural changes to the court, whether that's, you know, implementing 18 year term limits or, you know, expanding the court? What do you think really is the likelihood that we're really going to see some real change happen in the next you know, two years, the rest of Biden's uh, administration and beyond. What do you think the chances are we see something like that? Well, I don't think it's likely to happen in the short term, but I think we have to keep talking about it and keep educating ourselves about it. Um, there's, you know, going back to some of my remarks that I made at the, at the top of the program, right? Like if we were to design this system today, it would not look like the one that we presently have. Um, it is increasingly skewed toward, toward, you know, essentially minority rule. And by minority rule, I mean, like, by the people who did not win the vote. Um, and, you know, court reform is part of a broader effort at, like, structural democratic reform, right? Looking at things about how we've got nothing, we've got these winner-take-all systems you know, you know, across our electoral system, we have the problem of gerrymandering. Um, we've, of course, have a extraordinary problem with voter suppression across the country that is just sort of cropping up in new pernicious ways in 2022. And I think court reform has to be considered as part of all of that. And while it may not seem like something that is feasible, like today, um, it's certainly not going to be feasible if we don't keep talking about it and educating people about how there are different paths and different ways of of structuring a court so that it is independent and does you know serve and can serve as a protector of people's rights. Zanelle, where do you kind of fall on on the question of the chances of us seeing real reform happen to the court? I think Sarah's right. I couldn't have said it better. Um, we have to normalize the conversations. We've even seen senators become more open to it now who before were not because constituents are talking about it. And the times really call for it. It's like, how much are you going to take before you um, stand up and say something's got to give, something's got to change? Um so I think um, having this discussion on a program like yours um, at people's local dinner tables, just talking about it more is what what helps. So, you know, I wish I could tell you, oh, yeah, tomorrow. But that's, <laughs> that's just not just not true. And and change often takes some time. Right. It has to it has to be normalized. You're, you are shaping the debate right now by talking about it and. Um, so we'll we'll continue to do that. 
Absolutely. We've seen that progress is slow, but I'm glad we're having this conversation about reforms because it's clearly needed. You know, just, you know, whenever I think about, you know, one of the things that I saw that needed to be reformed was just the power of the court to pick what cases they listen to. Um, It's just like, you know, Congress getting to say when they're going to get a raise. It's like, why would you? (laughs) It just seems contrary to give yourself that sort of power. Um, so I'm so glad that both of your organizations, um, uh, American Constitution Society and the Project on Government Oversight, are are working to 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 frame these conversations and to build an insight around this because I, people say to me all the time they don't want to talk about politics, but they'll complain about how high the gas is. They'll complain <laughs> about high you know rent is. They'll complain about you know job insecurity. They'll complain about all these you know food stamp though. I'm just like, do you not realize how much the government touches your life and you're complaining about it and you don't want to talk about it or care about it? But I'm so glad you, Sarah and uh, Zanelle, are bringing uh, some light to these topics because clearly um, these touch so many things. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to go to school. Uh, anywhere if it had not been for, you know, intervention with the, the court. So, so important. Um, Devin, your last thoughts to thank Sarah and Zanel? Sure. I mean, it's everything Adrian just said, and I, I think it's an important conversation. And I think the conversation, like both of you have stated, it's going to be driven by the decisions the court is making that impacts people's lives. So as we you mentioned earlier, we're going to get a ruling on a big abortion case. And that's going to, again, insert the court into the news. And so that's our opportunity to strike while the iron is hot and tell people like, hey, there are things we can do to reform the court. It's it's not a sexy topic. People don't really like talking about it. But when we have the opportunity, like now with, you know, uh, Judge Brown Jackson's hearing and when they do come down with with big decisions, we can then say, hey, you know, that decision you didn't really agree with. There are ways for us to reform the courts where we get the decisions that the majority of the country actually want to see. So I think this was an important conversation and one I hope a lot of people listen to and hopefully learn at the very least, you understand what we need to fix with the court, how the court works, how it operates, but more importantly, the things that we you know need to reform with. And like Sarah said, if we could go all the way back to 17, I think it was 1798 and maybe have a different discussion back then, we probably would have chosen a different path, but nonetheless, that is the story of America. That's how we got here. So, <laughs> so before we cut our just, segment you know. here, listeners, um, I'm gonna we need to make sure each organization, uh, Sarah and Zanelle, uh, and I guess Sarah, you can go first if you like. Could you let our listeners know how they can follow Project and Government Oversight on social media? Sure. Um, so you can follow. Uh, we call ourselves Pogo Project on Government Oversight. <laughs> Um, Our handle is uh, at Pogo Watchdog and um, and our sub org that that I'm the director of the Constitution Project is at Conpro. So we we certainly welcome you following us and you can also find us at Pogo.org. Perfect. Perfect. And Zanel, would you let us know about the American Constitution Society on social media? Absolutely. Our hashtag is ACSLaw. So please do follow us and our website where you can get lots of information is acslaw.org. Hope to see you there. 
Awesome. Awesome. We hope to have more people gravitate towards each of your causes and organizations. We appreciate you for being with us. Uh, again, listeners, remember, we've had two great guests, Sarah Tuberville, director of the Constitution Project at the Project on Government Oversight, and Zanel October, executive vice president at the American Constitution Society. So again, we appreciate you. Um, listeners, I know it's been a long conversation, but we're going to give you one more break. And when Devin and I come back, we're going to wrap this up and give you a preview into the future. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, IG and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right. Welcome back, listeners. So as always, we like to leave you with giving you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the show. So first off, me and Adrian will be back here this Saturday, April 2nd, to bring you another edition of our weekly roundup series. This is weekly roundup number 11 that's going to be coming to you this Saturday, April 2nd. And if you don't know, our weekly roundup series is our chance to give you commentary on what's going on in the world around us. So whether it's news, uh, entertainment, business, finances, international news sometimes, even funny and odd news, we talk about it and give you our perspective. So make sure you tune in for weekly weekly roundup number 11. It's a great, fun time. We promise we're not comedians, but we can be very funny in the moment. So make sure you tune in for that this Saturday, April 2nd. Coming up after that, the following Tuesday, April 5th, you'll be hearing us again for another regular episode. Like you heard today, we have another great topic and another great guest. So make sure you tune in for that episode coming to you on April 5th. Uh, That is a Tuesday, as always, we'll be releasing our new episode. So April 2nd, weekly roundup number 11, April 5th, our next regular episode featuring another guest and great topic. So Before we get out of here, we want to also let you know that you can help us out, not just by listening and downloading the podcast, but you can actually help us out by donating to us here at the Black Agenda Podcast. And Adrian is going to let you know how you can help us out. Yeah, thank you, Devin. So listeners, we've been talking, you know, for, you know, four seasons. Well, this is our fourth season now. So we've been talking for a while um, almost two years. I mean, it'll be two years in June. And we've been talking so much about what the Black Agenda podcast is doing. And and you know this, Bill, you, you already know, but I wanted to think of something different to kind of, you know, maybe add a different element to it. And I was sitting here thinking, you know, whenever people think about giving, they have to feel like they're giving to something that means something, something that matters. And I always go back to our conversations about like the Supreme Court. You know, we were talking about that. And, you know, how much would it matter if, you know, the Black Agenda, you know, Devin and I could arrange something to say that based off of our listeners' contributions and our listeners' support, this donation is given to this organization, a champion for this or that. And I was like, that's the power that you as a patron can have with the Black Agenda um, you can help us to be a catalyst for social change and social justice within our democracy. So all you got to do is go to our website. It's blackagendapod.com 
or while you're listening, scroll down in the timestamps. When you click on the donate tab on our website or in the timestamps, it's going to take you to the same place. You're going to go to our Patreon website. You're going to be able to donate on a monthly basis. And you're going to know that you're making the world a better place by feeding into the movement of the Black Agenda podcast. Like I said, go to our website, blackagendapod.com. Or scroll down, click on the donate and the timestamps, same thing. Other thing we like to do is mention our cherry of the month. And just so you know, this is the last time we're going to be talking about them because um, next time you hear us, it's going to be April. So we got a new cherry of the month. So make sure you pay attention to this one. This is the Common Ground Foundation. They empower and uplift youth from high potential communities to become future leaders. They have programming that includes character development, civic engagement, technology, generational wealth, entrepreneurship, leadership, exploration with uh, creative creative expression, even technology and health and wellness. Founded by entertainer Common and his mom, they provide a holistic curriculum that encourages youth to achieve academic excellence while inspiring them to realize their dreams and create an impact. Their motto is they come to us as dreamers, but emerge as dreamers and believers. Like I said, that's the last time you're going to hear about them. So make sure you go check them out. The Common Ground Foundation. Exactly. So make sure you help them out. Help us out. We'll all appreciate any help you can give us. And lastly, we want to give a thanks to our, our great guests that were on the show today, Miss Sarah Turberville and Miss Danelle October. They were both excellent and we appreciate them giving us their time today. But we have one more ask of you. We've already asked you to help us out by donating, but we also ask that you like, share, and follow us on social media. You can find us. Our handle is at Black Agenda Pod. And again, that's at Black Agenda Pod. So we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And again, our handle is at Black Agenda Pod. The other thing you can do now is new this season. We now have news. It's called Our Voice. And so if you go to blackagendapod.com forward slash news, you'll find the Our Voice section, which is news articles that have been created and written by some really, really talented interns that we have here at the Black Agenda. So make sure you check that out. Again, that's blackagendapod.com forward slash news. And it's called Our Voice, a bunch of news from many different perspectives. It's awesome. So make sure you check that out and give us some feedback and tell us what you think about it. So that's it for us, folks. We appreciate you staying with us. Again, thank you to our guests, Sarah and Zanel, but also thank you for listening and staying with us. And so we'll be back with you this Saturday, April 2nd for weekly roundup number 11. So until then, we'll catch you next time.